we have infrastructure in place today, which we have to use. The most economic fuel to use is what we have. While all the progress is being made on the other side, why don't we commit to being very responsible with what we do things, right? I mean, how we do things, how we treat the environment, how we treat people, how we treat health and safety. We will be responsible, we will try our best. Oh, by the way, while the other industry is developing, we will give you our best practices to take over there. The Energy and Transition podcast is the first of its kind, exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by PISA, the Petroleum Equipment and Services Association, Lockton Companies, and Galtway Marketing. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Leslie Beyer. Thank you so much for joining the Energy and Transition podcast again. We are here recording in the Fletcha Azul Tequila Studio in Houston. Um, and our guest today is Mahesh Konjuru, who's the Chief Executive Officer at ProSEP. Welcome, Mahesh. Thank you, Leslie. I'm excited to be here. So a little bit about Mahesh. You are, like I said, the Chief Executive Officer at ProSEP. You have 16 years of experience in our sector. Um, um, and you were previously the head of operations and the CFO. Um, but before that, you had a background in capital markets um, and investment. So you were the principal at the Potomac Energy Fund. And your background in your education, an MBA from MIT and a PhD in chemical engineering from the University of Akron. Incredibly impressive. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I think I barely passed chemistry. Uh Chemical engineering is a little bit different. I'm sure you would have done well in chemical engineering. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I would have. I'm sure I would have. Um, so just to start with, Mahesh, tell us a little bit more about ProSEP. I'm, I'm familiar with the company. I know what you all do in terms of chemicals. I know you're full stream um, and how you approach um, helping companies reduce their environmental footprint, which is really kind of your main focus area. Yeah, ha happy to do that. So before I do that, I wanted to thank you, um, I think you've shown tremendous leadership, you and PISA here in the last six to nine months. Thank you. And I've said that to you by email um, a couple of times. I, what we've faced the last few months has been tremendously challenging for a lot of people. I think you've stepped up. I saw you uh, being very active in, in, in the social media space and generally being active everywhere uh, in giving people access to policy, financial metrics, health and safety, and also giving access to leadership and thought process. Right? So I think that was great. Um, 
we will come out of this in a, in a, in a, in a positive way, I think. But again, I want to commend you for being a very active leader in this. Thank you very much. Well, Mahesh, I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, it's hard for everyone, you know, right? The bottom drops out and you're like, okay, what are we going to do? And at PISA, we really thought, okay, what can we do? What's, what's our value? And it's connecting people. And so we just immediately kind of tried to transition to do that in a virtual way. Um, and I feel like it was impactful and helpful, you know, for our member companies. Definitely. I mean, I think I, I would recommend you for for at least getting people more knowledge on the PPP aspect of things. Thank you. But people need a capital, right? So mm -hmm. you were really upfront and where some professional firms usually would have done that, you took that role on. And I think you kind of smoothly facilitated that transition. That was great. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Spoken like a true uh, member of the uh, <laughs> membership committee at PISO, which thank you for your work on that too. I appreciate that. So... Going to Procept, so I think, thank you, you summarized it in a very um, appropriate way. So the DNA of Procept has always been about efficiency. It's about a 15-year-old company that came out of um, legacy companies in Norway and the U.S. And the main thesis was how do we think, how do we do things in an efficient manner, right? Uh, over the last few years, we have transitioned into focusing more on um, how do we create value uh, focusing on two important things. One is use of less chemicals, and the other one is clean water. So we boiled on everything down to those two aspects of it. And obviously the environment the last two years has allowed us to come up with the sexy tagline of produce chemicals, clean water, which is kind of going going uh, with the trend that's, that's, that's popular these days. And we are fortunate to do that. So our business model is Anywhere in the upstream, downstream, midstream, or even the broader energy industrial space, you're using chemicals in any way to clean your processes or to uh, operate your processes more efficiently. We have devices that help you do that in a, in a more efficient way, which helps you save money and helps you use these harmful chemicals less. So that's one aspect of our business. The second is cleaner water. So Anywhere where you have contaminated water that's hard to remove, uh, we have this very cool product called Ozorb Media Systems, which gets you to zero discharge, almost clean water. And it's regenerable, which means it doesn't get consumed, so, which is great. So it, again, that also saves you a lot of logistics and costs and emissions uh, and whatever you need to do to, to supply all these fuel. So... It boils down to, again, two simple things is we will let you use less chemicals and we will clean your water. So that's been our um, new tagline. And uh, if anything, I think the last nine months have uh, allowed us to even laser focus on those taglines. And um, we're hopefully developing a nice sales pipeline to deliver on those here in the next 12 to 18 months. Right. So y'all were doing that long before that was the big tagline in the industry, you know, before everyone really started talking about ESG. I know the first time I just started really discussing ESG with my board was four years ago. Y'all were already in the midst of all this. Correct. Except we didn't know it was called ESG. Right. right. At least that's a new acronym that people came up with. But again, it's always been about efficiency um, in that aspect of the thing. So we were fortunate enough to be doing that. So what are the technologies behind that? For example, you're working with a customer in the downstream space or upstream, you know, whatever kind of example. Um, what technology or service do you bring to bear to reduce the reliance on, on chemicals? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So, um, so on the reduced chemical side, we have this mechanical device, uh, which is 
basically uh, what we call a high efficiency mixer. It has no moving parts. It's like a valve, but better. And there's no moving parts to it. So it uses intrinsic, uh, intrinsic scientific principles to help two fluids mix better in, 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 a, in a short distance, right? So the way we design it, that's the secret sauce there. Okay. So we help you install it. Uh, we design, engineer, and supply it and install it, and it runs on its own. Um, the cool part, it's great to run, but it's so sturdy that it can last for 20 years, right? So we don't make money once it's put in there. Right, there's no servicing <laughs> there's no that you're service billing people for. To it, right? yeah. But we're proud of that, and so that, that's the reduced chemical part. The second part, which is clean water, this is the, uh, it's like a silica powder, it looks like sand. Uh, the way, because of the way it's structured and manufactured, it allows you to capture these contaminants. Um, and then once it's captured, you can dislodge them and then keep you reusing that as, ma as many times as possible. So this would be used in produced water, it, like post It would be produced water, but it's not produced water that people in the, in the shale space talk about. It's more where uh, it's a little bit more on the offshore side uh, okay. because the discharge specs are a little bit more stringent. And so we go on these platforms and, and uh, build a system for people where there is some separation upstream of our system already, but we get you to that zero or five parts per million, which people want to get to. Okay. Uh, there's age old technologies that let you get to a few hundred parts per million, mm -hmm. but getting uh, down from that to pretty close to zero is very hard, especially when you have these things called dissolved hydrocarbons, which are hard to remove by just gravity or just mechanical separation. Okay. And on the blender piece, I, I noticed on your website, you'll have this really cool graphic kind mm -hmm. of that shows exactly how that works Comes through in, yeah. upstream, midstream, and downstream. Yeah. So it applies all the way across. It does. Yeah. So each uh, segment of the oil and gas industry uses mixers in different ways. So you're right. We can go in the upstream side uh, where people are injecting chemicals to separate oil and water okay. in a better way. Mm -hmm. um, midstream side, I'm going to call it midstream, but where uh, natural gas has sometimes uh, H2S, uh, hydrogen sulfide, and they inject a chemical to get rid of that. And we, if we use, if you use our mixer, you have to use less chemical, less scavenger, as they call it, to do that as well. On the midstream side, our CTO was responsible in finding a new application, especially in LNG, where um, there is some issues with how you mix two different uh, components, and our mixer helps you do that. And these. The, the the last part that I just mentioned was accidentally discovered. Right. And we are now kind of, you know, kicking <laughs> nice and running. Accident. We were doing great. Yeah. I mean, we John Sabi, who's our CTO, just got an application from Australia two weeks ago. And within two weeks, we were supposed to supply something to them. So it's fantastic. It, it's been cool to have these cool um, technical gadgets that, you know, you can apply to any part of the industry. Right. Well, what's the appetite that you've seen for your from your customers across the full stream for you know, efficiencies and reducing environmental footprint and wanting to use less chemicals. I mean, is that something that you saw, for example, from the majors a while back, and now you're really seeing it more with, you know, the independents and, and all the EMP companies, or was it kind of across the board, the same companies were really looking for that from the beginning? Yeah, it's a great question. So from our mixer side, when we talk about uh, less chemicals or even less water in some cases, the appetite was there even before COVID. I would say I was probably six, seven years ago. I would say the first um, 
wouldn't call it first, but for me, it was the first 2014, 15, the down cycle through the oil price went going down. That accelerated some deployment because people you know, didn't want to spend too much money. Uh, there was a lot of focus on efficiency, right? How do I do more with less? So we, we saw a lot of appetite during that time. People wanted to hear about these products during that time, but they didn't want to spend money. But that allowed us to get them familiar with the product. So when their CapEx budgets opened up a couple of years later, they started buying it, right? So this is, I mean, I can show you our, our biggest client is one of the largest producers in the world that's in the Middle East. Um, and, and they've been very smart about how to deploy our products. So they even speak the language uh, that we speak, which is we talk about return on investment, uh, net present value. And when we started presenting our mixers in that way, they really liked it. And they said internally they were doing that as well, right? So I think when price of oil goes down, everybody wants to look at uh, you know, unique ways to, to qualify any product. And we were fortunate enough to be there already. To, and then we were going to accelerate that. It remains to be seen whether COVID helps us accelerate even more. Um, I think we're still in the midst of it. So hopefully here in the next 18 to 24 months, we see more of that deployment. Right. Well, what do you see on the horizon? I mean, I hear a lot of, you know, talk about the industry, you know, roaring back here pretty soon. If we can see, yeah. you know, a vaccine and if we can see demand to start to pick back up, you know, and, and then even people talking about there potentially being a price spike because there's been such a lack of investment. Sure. So, I mean, that would certainly free up a little bit of. Yeah, Apex. exactly. So I think, look, as we sit here today, November 9th, right? So I, <laughs> I, I look at it. Um, we used to consume 100 million barrels a day, right? Um, I read that during the Q2, Q3 of this year, during, during COVID, it went down to 85, 15, almost 20%, right? Between 80 to 85. But Q3, it's roared back, which is what you're talking about. We're like in the mid 90s is what I hear, right? So... There's a third wave, what people call it, of infections now, right? Um, but as we sit here today, November 9th, there's the vaccine uh, good news that's come in. There's more certainty on the U.S. political side. Um, I think demand will stay there, may, maybe go back up in 21. Um, I, I think that's on the demand side. On the supply side, I'm sure you, you, you have uh, your experience in D.C. as you, you see what this new administration will do is if they get let Iran export oil, more oil back into the market. So you see what I heard about three to 3.5 million barrels coming from there. Libya having another million back there. So that puts a lot of pressure on pricing, right? So I think that may take, if, if you listen to exports, that may take a year to come to fruition. So which guarantees that in 21, maybe the price will be still in the 40s, maybe creep a little bit to the 50s. I don't think it's going to be high. But then your supply will come in because production has been cut for so long. Um, maybe 22 is when you'll see a supply crunch and then the price will go back up, I think. Anyway, there's far smarter people than me who are saying <laughs> it, but I mean, that's, that's my speculation. No, I, I think that's a smart one. And I think, you know, we're all interested to see what happens with this new administration. I think one of the things we can pretty much count on, you know, is rejoining Paris Accord, certainly Correct. starting to see more of the rollback of the, you know, regulatory actions that were taken by the Trump administration, maybe some changes in tariffs, yep. um, hopefully not, you know, a removal of all those sanctions on the Iranian <laughs> oil media. Immediately. Right. Um, but one of the interesting things I was talking about with some colleagues today 
You know, there's really no one that we know of right now in the Biden administration from our industry that could really speak to that and say, hey, you know what that would do to domestic uh, oil production? Yes. You know, there's really no one there. There's a lot of really smart people on climate, sure. but no one that understands fossil fuels just yet. Okay. Um, and, and that's going to be on us, I think, to educate them and to con continue to work with that administration, which we hope will look a little more moderate, given kind of the election outcomes with a lot of the more progressive candidates that were well-funded, sure. not, you know, being successful. So, so maybe it's an opportunity for you to be in government. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm done with that, man. No, I spent 20 years in D.C. just about. And I'm, I'm happy to be home. Yeah. Uh, back in Texas. But yeah, hopefully they pick somebody that's smart. I mean, and one thing I noticed, somebody smart again posted this on Twitter the other day. If you look at the um, oil indices equity returns under Obama's administration and Trump administration, Obama administration returns were significantly higher. Look, any oil company you look at. Um, and so what does that tell you? I mean, it doesn't mean that public perception is one administration was more friendly, right? But what happened, obviously, was the last 10 years, there has been some destruction in, in capital deployment in the U.S. shale industry, right? So we, are only, sure. we, are, we have ourselves to blame for that. Um, so I, and you also see that there's a lag between policy adoption to the real industry performing, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we should kind of, and you're smart. There's a lot of smart people in our industry that talk about, hey, let's just not get carried away by just public perception of who's in D.C., right? Right. To me, technology drives a lot of things and economics drive the rest, right? The reason the production has gone up the last 20 years is because technology was good and, and economics allowed that. Um, I really like what the Obama admission said about, hey, it's all of the above, right? Let's just not just, you know, they're smart people. I don't know whoever gave him that phrase was smart. Um, I hope the new administration, you know, takes that into account. I mean, it's going to be hard to go away from fossil fuels, right? It's going to take a while. It, it right? will. That, that, that's and the that's, reality. That is the reality. And I think um, that's one thing that we're starting to do better in our industry is really talking about how oil and gas will be around for decades, regardless of how quickly, you know, we are able to move to renewables and, you know, other new energy sources. Oil and gas are always going to be part of that supply chain. Correct. And the baseload power. I mean, those technologies just don't exist yet. Yeah, just, I mean, I'm sure you heard these numbers going from 100 million barrels a day of oil for transportation to zero is going to take many years. Many years. Uh, going from 22 trillion kilowatt hours of electricity to zero is going to take, I mean, 80% of that or 70% of that is fossil fuel generated, right? It's going to take a while to get there. And I think one of the, one of the things um, maybe we'll talk about is Hey, how does how how does the oil and gas industry represent itself better? Right? Mm -hmm. And the way I suggest we do it is look, let's accept it. We produce fuel from fossils, right? So which is okay. I mean, let's not get defensive about it. That's the reality. When people say, "Hey, if you produce this, what's in it for you to go away from it?" I understand, but we have infrastructure in place today which we have to use. The most economic fuel to use is what we have. While all the progress is being made on the other side, why don't we commit to being very responsible with what we do things, right? I mean, how we do things, how we treat the environment, how we treat people, how we treat health and safety. We will be responsible. We will try our best. Oh, by the way, while the other industry is developing, 
we will give you our best practices to take over there, right? I mean, there's a lot of, look, technology deployment is technology deployment. This industry has tremendous technology, right? And there's ways to understand how you deploy it. And so let's just accept it. Let's not be defensive, right? And then let's just say, hey, we will transfer this technology when it's needed and we will help. I mean, we are not here to, to say one's evil or the other. Right. Right. I think you say that perfectly. I mean, we are the industry that has all the engineers, be they petroleum engineers, chemical yes. engineers like yourself, civil engineers. I mean, OFS companies run by civil engineers all day long. Right. We are the ones that understand how to develop projects at scale. We've built the infrastructure mm -hmm. and we're it's it's gonna come down to us to be able to transition. Exactly. We're happy to develop. I mean, the other, I mean, so the renewables can develop at their own pace and they will do that. And there's a lot of drive because a lot of smart people are going there. We, are, we welcome that. I mean, there's no need to be defensive about it. And if you want, if, we, if you would like us to contribute, we would love to do that as well, I think. So I think it will work itself out. I think there's unfortunately just too much noise because of the way this country has been the last few years. I We've think. been so polarized. Mm -hmm. I agree. Right. It's just been, to, you know, we feel like we're presented with binary choices all the time. It's not binary. It's not. No. <laughs> not at all. No. Um, earlier, you mentioned the equity markets, and I kind of wanted to sure. come back to that a little bit. So the equity markets do like, you know, having, you know, one branch of government be, you know, from a different party. They, they like the stability of that. And you understand all that coming from your finance background. And you did that for a long time before ProSEP. So what made you, besides your background in chemical engineering, really kind of wanted to get over to that other side of the business. This episode of the Energy and Transition podcast is sponsored by Milestone Environmental Services, whose commitment to environmental stewardship and protecting customers, employees, regulators, and neighboring communities make it a leader in the transition to a cleaner energy future. Milestone provides innovative, dependable solutions for non-hazardous waste disposal, which helps their EMP partners improve efficiency and environmental performance in the production of oil and gas. Milestone builds strong customer relationships with a deliberate, proven approach that industry trusts to keep the environment safe. Known for its passion for customer service, Milestone strives to exceed expectations in all they do. Far ahead, always nearby, that's Milestone. The Petroleum Equipment and Services Association is the global trade association for the oilfield services sector and a proud sponsor of the Energy and Transition podcast. We support OFS in international trade, supply chain, health and safety, environmental policy, and a number of other areas. Our Energy Transition Committee is focused on sharing best practices in sustainability, collaboration with renewables technologies, and driving a smart energy transition. Please join us at PISA.org. Yeah, it's a good question. So I've had an interesting background. So you, you bring up my technical background. So before I, I went to get an MBA, I was in the technical side of things. I was tangentially in the energy industry. I was doing automotive emissions control and some on the chemical side, petrochemical side. Um, and then I went to business school during a period which people call clean tech 1.0, 2008, 10, where there's a big movement towards clean energy. That was the first phase, I would say, at least during my lifetime. And that was an interesting period to be there. And, um, and I got uh, into that sector, um, but we were investing, I got into senior, senior debt and equity investing, the private equity side. And we were doing all of the above. We were doing traditional energy and clean tech, which is quite interesting. Uh, 
I was at a fun and it was great to learn everything. I think you know when you're you know I was a junior person there. It's great when you're a junior person. That's when you learn the most. You know? I agree. <laughs> so I learned a lot of great things and 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 what drives each of these companies, their technologies. And it came time to my wife and I. We were moving from the East Coast, um, so we had to make a choice where to go. We were both in energy, um, so we said, "Hey, it's either California or Texas. California's got renewables. Texas has got uh, traditional energy." Uh, we were fortunate enough, both my wife and I found something here in Texas. Um, and I knew the investors in my current company. And I said, hey, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's uh, There's some environmental aspect to it, but I was also fascinated by technology. And so we were fortunate enough to, to uh, um, I was fortunate enough to get the, get the job. And I've, I've, then seven years later, here I am still here. Um, and it's been fascinating. I've enjoyed every... Um, I guess every uh, week, every year I've been here. Well, it's a unique background to be where you are, where you sit with Procep, you know, working with oil and gas companies when you've been on the private equity side, especially in new energies and Mm -hmm. in renewables. So with that background, I mean, when do you think, how long do you think it's going to take for us to start to be able to access capital markets again? You know, will we ever be able to show you know, Wall Street, hey, invest in us. (laughs) We're the way to get to lower carbon. Yeah, so I think that's a very interesting question. I think, um, you know, before COVID hit, you know, we had a lot of these conferences in Houston that talk about, hey, uh, there's so much destruction of capital that's happened in the U.S. onshore oil and gas industry over the last 10 years. Uh, we we kept on getting funded, thinking, hey, this is the year where we'll, we'll turn it around, I think, right? So, and look, that's a very hard question to ask. I mean, I think... I listened to another smart person on a, on a, on a podcast, and, uh, which uh, this person, I think, writes a pretty influential newsletter that um, a lot of wealth allocators look at globally. And he said, look, when, when people are trying to allocate capital um, anywhere, um, there is some part, of, there is an emotion to it, right? Uh, it has to be in line with my mission statement, with which, what, my values. But he said, there's come a point where it just happened, he said, the last 12, 18 months where it doesn't matter. Don't get emotional about it. He said, the shift to clean tech is real. It's, it's happening. Those of us who are not in that industry, just embrace it. Don't, don't be defensive about it, right? Um, so I, I find that to be pretty profound. It's, it's there. I'm not going to question why it is. I'm not allocating that capital. There's somebody allocating it. So the question then is, if there is so much competition for smart capital, how do we position ourselves in the right way to show to them that we'll return capital the right way, right? So definitely all the excesses of our energy, of our, sec, of our industry the last 10 years have to go away, right? I think we have to be very, very smart on how we deploy capital. Um, and I, it's going to happen. I mean, it's going to happen. It's going to take some time. I think there will be winners in this, in this, in this industry. Um, I think for me, I'm, I tend to think where I am a little bit more. Um, so producers is, 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 is something that they'll figure it out. There are smart people there. All field services, which is where I am, I like to think of them again based on size, right? So if you've got the top four, right? Schlumberger, Halliburton, uh, Baker Hughes, and NOV. I think COVID has accelerated them optimizing their own structure. How do I size myself the right way to offer value to a client to return money to investors? They're going to do that, I would say, the next 12 to 24 months. 
there's tremendous opportunity for companies like where I am at Procep and other companies in our size where, because of our size, it, it gives us more agility in, in coming up with new products that add value, differentiate ourselves and deploy them faster. So I think there'll be continual, continuous focus on smart proprietary technologies, which will add value. Um, so I can think from that perspective, it's going to be, it's going to be where um, there will be return of investment that's going to be attractive for the next five years, even 10 years, maybe. Um, a big picture, I think the transition is coming. Um, it may, it'll take longer. So I think it probably needs to push us to be more disciplined and how we deploy capital and return money to investors. Absolutely, it does. And I think a part of it too that you and I talked about before is how companies of all sizes are learning how to report their ESG metrics. Y'all have been reporting for a very long time and in a very transparent way. Mm -hmm. um, and I know there are many companies that could learn lessons from your journey. So can you kind of talk about how y'all first started doing that, what your methodology is behind being so transparent with your metrics? Yeah, thank you. So I think we are fortunate enough to be backed by a pretty um, forward-thinking private equity group. It's called EVPE, which is based in Norway. And they signed up, to, I think it was probably one of the first signatories to the UN PRI, the Principles of Responsible Investment. So once they did that, I think they internally decided that we will make every uh, portfolio company of ours uh, do mandatory ESG metrics reporting. So again, it was primarily driven by them. So, so we have to thank them for just very um, forward-thinking group of investors. So we started doing that um, and it's been good to do that. I think it's, you know, it, it's done a lot of things. One is, like you say, we are proud to post that on our website. Uh, we are proud to report to our clients. We're proud to report that to our suppliers. We're proud to uh, show that to our colleagues. We're proud to show that to future colleagues you want to hire, right? I mean, all, our industry is faced with challenges hiring talent, right? So um, if you highlight what you're doing in an appropriate way, I think it just is beneficial from all angles, I think. So it's helped us a lot. I mean, I've, I'm energized to kind of look at them before we goes out every quarter. Um, Internally, we have people who are very interested in doing that. So it's been great. So I say, um, I mean, obviously, we thank our investors for doing that, but uh, we've enjoyed doing it. It's been impressive to see. And I know we at PISA, we have an ESG committee, and there are a lot of companies that come to us and say, okay, like, we're at zero. We don't even know how to get started. Yeah. And so to have a leg up on it, I think has... I'm sure been really beneficial. And I was just so impressed to see how you're leading in your peer group um, in gender diversity. Yeah. And yeah. y'all were already there before you even started tracking that. That How do you think that happened? Yeah, so Aside I, from the fact that women are yeah, just so I, smart. I, I may have mentioned amazing. this to you before we started <laughs> recording here, but I think so what happened was uh, when we were asked to first report these metrics, one of the lines was, hey, um, number of uh, uh, women in your workplace and the number of women in leadership positions. And uh, you know, we have a team that records that and it did that and showed it to me and we were just surprised to see we were so high. We were not surprised to see the number was high, but we were surprised to see we were so highly ranked within our peer group, right? So for us, it almost um, was a positive surprise. And then we started thinking about it and he said, well, this must be how everybody in our company thinks, right? It's kind of in our DNA. Um, it also points out when we hire people, we're not thinking about, you know, 
uh, you know, how they look and what they, what they, what they do, right? It's more about, Hey, where is the capability? And, and I was very proud to see that we've done it without even actively doing it because I had never issued a directive saying, Hey, we need to, to target this diversity and limit, right? So it was already there. So I was proud to see that it's in our leadership DNA, but I would also like to point out that we had a very progressive and fantastic uh, HR director, Nicole Miles. Unfortunately, we lost her to the tech industry recently, but she was spectacular. Um, she helped you know, guide us in when, we, when she would look at recruiting, objectively focus on capability. What can this person do? Can this person fit in the culture, right? Uh, it's about culture and capability. Um, again, so we're proud of it. We, we're glad it was automatically there and we hope to keep it up. Um, I think one thing we would like to see is maybe add that to our board level as well. You know, we would like to add hopefully a board member um, that kind of, you know, enhances um, the way we think through challenges. Right. Well, you mentioned losing talent to tech. I mean, that that's, you know, really kind of one of our greatest unspoken fears that we all have right now is mm -hmm. how attractive the tech industry seems to be to a lot of the, you know, people in STEM fields that we would like to have. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what can we do as an industry to really try and, and work on our image? I mean, you said earlier, it's all about technology and the economics mm -hmm. after that. So if it's all about technology, it should be here with us. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it goes back to what we talked about. I think, unfortunately, we saddled with this perception that we're a fossil fuel driven industry, right? And it's a reality of it, but it doesn't mean we live in the fossil fuel age. Right? We, the technology that's been used is very modern. It's, 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 it's tremendous technology. Any, any functional engineering aspect of it, you look at it, mechanical, chemical, uh, civil, as you mentioned, all of these are advanced. Now we have a lot of digital focus. I mean, you see uh, the big four at right? Amazon and Microsoft and Google have open offices either in Austin or Houston. So they realize the value of that. So there is some uh, reverse brain drain that is going to happen, I think. I think the key aspect to this is uh, uh, probably going digital, right? Having more digital focus will draw more talent into the space. Um, and I think look, the other part is probably more macro um, uh, demographic driven, real estate driven. I don't think the real estate um, pricing on the West Coast is going to be sustainable for a long time. I'm sure you're paying attention to that. So a lot of people now are working, you know, remotely or actually moving away, going to areas like Texas. You know, the, the move from Tesla is great to here, right? So it's going to happen. Um, it's going to take a little bit of time. Um, but I think, look, I, 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 I I'm going to reiterate what I said is we need to change the public perception of it. First thing in changing perception is accepting who you are, right? We are a fossil fuel industry. There's nothing to do. There's nothing we can do about it. But we, will, we can continue to be responsible even being that. Um, and the way we can message that, you know, you're great at messaging. Maybe you can find a way to message that in a great way, right? Right. I've, I've been noodling on that for a few years now. Yeah. No, we try. I feel like technology is really the key, Yeah. you know, and, and the power of our people mm -hmm. is, I think, the best way to talk about that is the knowledge base that our industry has with all these engineers that have solved all these problems for decades and the technologies that we drive, especially, you know, and I was going to ask you about this next, but, you know, with carbon capture, 
future with all of, of our ability to mm -hmm. reduce carbon, you know, it's got to be us. Um, one of the things I was going to ask you is, is this your perception? I mean, I think increasingly when I'm together with oil field services, with my people, you know, we talk a lot <laughs> about how um, at the EMP end, it's like, okay, we've we've made a net zero commitment. We've announced that goal. Okay, now um, oil field services companies, all of our s suppliers and, and service providers, tell us exactly how we're going to get there. Yeah. Do you feel that? Um, yeah, so I think... Um, we inherently feel like we need to show because we are we are a small lower middle market company. We often go up go up against big OFS companies. So we feel like one way we differentiate ourselves is to point out what we are doing, and it's easier for us to do as opposed to a behemoth like Schlumberger, right? I mean, for them to go carbon neutral across their whole value chain, it's going to take a long time. For us, it's an advantage of being a small company and whatever number of employees we have on our supplier base. Hey, we can do this. It's, it's, it's much easier. And especially a company like ours, which was focused on efficiency for so long, there's not that much uh, of a big paradigm shift, as people say, we need to do to get there. I think, right? So we can just say, hey, here are the critical things we need to change, and we'll start reporting that. And another thing our investors have done, uh, EV has done, is uh, we start now reporting greenhouse gas emissions from our supply chain, what we do. And we report that. Um, in fact, I we drafted a document recently to send it to a potential client of ours saying, hey, here's what we're doing. Um, and we hadn't heard from this client in a while. We were expecting an order from them. and But we knew they were committed to it. So it's just a small EMP producer. And um, and we sent that to them. And I think it was just positively. We, we don't have an order yet. But I mean, I think it's easier for a smaller company to do that is what I'm trying to say. That's an important you know, point to make, I think, because in this market, you think, oh, gosh, I just I need some some size to be able to weather the storm. Mm -hmm. But the smaller companies can be more agile. We can be. I mean, I agree. And as long as you have uh, a reasonable balance sheet and, and a good investor base supporting you, I think it's it's a good distinguishing thing you, you can show and compare it to the bigger companies. And that transparency within the supply chain across all of the ESG metrics, whether they're around labor or stakeholder engagement or diversity or, you know, re emissions reduction, mm -hmm. you know, that's increasingly um, something that you can use to competitive advantage. I completely agree. Yeah. And so we, again, we are fortunate enough um, because we are a small company, but we have uh, footprints in the Middle East, in Norway, um, we used to have in, 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 uh, in Asia, in the UK, which has forced us to kind of, um, you know, add a diverse supplier base to what we do. So one of the things we point out in the S part of ESG is uh, we tend to um, uh, outsource fabrication to people within 100 miles of ourselves and if possible, to developing nations, right? So that's been great. And we've also had experience um, of uh, enforcing FCPA um, uh, issues, right? So it's easier to do from a smaller company perspective, I think, and then that's where the advantage is. But um, yeah, I think your point about, um, I mean, how quick to distinguish yourself. I mean, I think we're in the right spot to do that. And um, uh, the more companies do that, the better the perception. 
And hopefully that goes back to attracting more talent to it. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, before we before we finish talking about the business, I just wanted to get back to the clean water aspect. Mm -hmm. I mean, have you always, you know, talked about it that way? Have you always said or did you call it something different in the beginning? And now you call it clean water because, you know, it's such a critical commodity in, yeah. in our industry. So uh, the the short tagline is just very recent. And I think we figured with the increased emphasis in our industry on clean part, I think we just need to communicate. It's all about messaging. We need to get the right message just repeated a lot, right? Because we do it, but I mean, this is marketing, marketing sales 101, right? You have to get to your best part in the beginning. Don't wait till the end or don't hide it in, in somewhere in the fourth paragraph, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> So, so we decided to do that right away and just said, hey, uh, that's our tagline. Anywhere we go, we're going to say reduce chemicals, clean water. We do that anyway. So why wouldn't we say that? Right. And you do that globally. And there's different regulations on water and what you can do with water everywhere, even in the U.S. I mean, there's all kinds of different state regs on that. So how do you manage that? Yeah. So I think for us, um, our product is a little bit more geared towards offshore. So, we, um, so we've got a Gulf of Mexico client that is there's looking to implement our technology. Uh, but we, so far, we've gone everywhere, right? So um, we have um, a, deploy, a product or system deployed in, in the Mediterranean. Uh, we have potentially two new projects in Australia next year, uh, one in Africa, one in Brazil, a uh, few in Europe, I think, right? So one thing that you, you probably see this already is one thing that's true is the rest of the world is a little bit more advanced in the U.S. in terms of asking for cleaner air, cleaner water, right? It is. Like they need it more. They like need we, it more. We've already accomplished it here, but they need it more there. They is need that it more there, mean? but the regulations are a little bit more stringent there than here. Um, I'm not going to comment which is right or wrong. And yes. we will go where the market's asking us to go. So we just kind of asked us to go there. And that's where we have, that's we find most of our potential clients. Um, and especially for water, right? So we've got, in the U.S. offshore market, you know, there, there's a limit, which is kind of comparable to the rest of the world, but the rest of the world is getting even more stringent. Uh, I think I would say the pace at which they're getting more stringent is faster than in the U.S. Wow. Um, by quite a bit. So, mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so hopefully, hopefully that's, that's helpful for everybody. <laughs> right. And how do y'all manage all of that global compliance? And do you see your international markets certainly a little more active right now? Um, so uh, that's another thing. We are in Houston, but we do a lot of business overseas. Uh -huh. Actually, Middle East is a, a lot of yes. our business and um, um, uh, some in Europe and some in Australia. Yeah. So I think um, the nice thing is people hear about this messaging, clean water and what what our product does, that part of the product, which is Ozorb, we compete with another big company that has a competing product. So when an operator or an EPC firm or an OFS firm is trying to deploy a new product that is trying to get to that reg, they know who to go to. Um, uh, prior to 17, there was only one company. Now we are a small company that's come into the few. So we are on everybody's radar. Uh, but again, it's challenging for us to be in Houston and get um, widespread marketing in Australia. So we've done that. We went to Australia last year, but it's hard. And so we're trying to find some partnerships 
to kind of uh, get the message out a little bit more. Right, in those markets. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, the size of your team and, and how you're headquartered and based here. How has COVID impacted your business specifically? How have y'all been able to manage the edit? You, did you lose a lot of people or how did that work? Yeah, so fortunately, we didn't let anybody go this year, which is great. That's and I amazing. told you, yeah, yeah, that was great. And we obviously had to um, uh, uh, make some salary adjustments so mm -hmm. that we could all survive. And fortunately, just when COVID hit those first couple of months, we got a couple of purchase orders. That was that were great, right? It's fortunate For, uh, timing. We are lower middle, middle market, so it's small. So if even a few orders can get us to survive longer. So that was great. Um, we, if we are fortunate, we will hopefully end this year with more sales than last year. It's, it's looking like it might with a little bit of luck, I think. We already more sales than last year, but we might double sales than last year. Uh, if you're a little bit fortunate. So that's been good. Um, um, however, I think we know the dark clouds are there, right? So we think 21 will be challenging. The, a few projects this year have moved to next year. Um, hopefully news from this morning uh, makes that still stay in next year, not push that further uh, to the right or further beyond next year. Um, so we're trying to be optimistic for next year. Um, so that's been good uh, from a business perspective, I think. Uh, we, um, we're hoping to do a little bit better this year, but anyway, it is what it is. And um, yeah, so we'll, we're hoping for a really good 21. To be able to get through without losing any of your people is incredibly commendable. I yeah. mean, I, we've all, everyone's taken salary hits and furloughs and things like that, but to be able to get through without losing people, um, congratulations to you Yeah, and your thank leadership. you. I mean, look, we, we, are, uh, we appreciate the support of our investors. We appreciate the patience and support of our colleagues. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's hard yeah. to take a salary cut and still be, still be um, performing at your best level, I think, right? No so we're kidding. Fortunate. I think we're all saying, all in Houston, we're all like, yes, it is. Yes. And, <laughs> and we're also thankful to our clients. I mean, look, they've been... Uh, a couple of our clients, despite what was going on, uh, showed uh, patience, showed uh, trust in us and placed those purchase orders in the mid middle of a yes. crisis, which we appreciate very much. That's great. And so for you personally, I know you've got young kids at home and yeah. you and your wife are both extraordinary professionals at the sea level. So how does that work with a three-year-old and a six-year-old and yeah, mom we, and daddy we, cranking it? We were comparing it. notes ahead of the recording. <laughs> so it's interesting. We... Um, I've got a six-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl, and it's been great spending quality time with them because we travel so much, my wife and I. Uh, now it's 24-7 with them. Um, uh, it's great. I mean, there's nothing like that. Um, sometimes there's nothing like that for your mental well-being than watching little ones just, you know, being doing their thing, right? It's great for us. So we appreciate it very much. A lot of family dinners have been great. Um, at the same time, you know, there's some days where you're pulling out your hair I mean, as young kids, you know? Oh, yeah. And and we were kind of still, the kids are staying home. Um, so from a family perspective, overall, it's been great. Um, I don't miss the travel. I don't take 24-hour flights for like a two-day meeting, right? I don't miss that. Um, and I think from, our, from a, from a um, business perspective, it's been, like I said, I appreciate our colleagues, uh, my colleagues who've been very patient and have gone through a lot of challenges and survived. But I do miss that if you're talking about it, miss popping into offices and having just impromptu discussions that lead to something productive. I think so we miss that. So there's definitely an urge to go back to the office as soon as possible, I think. Um, but we have to be careful. And uh, hopefully this, this good news from this morning uh, 
leads us to a pretty orderly distribution of vaccines here soon so that we can get back to normal. Absolutely. I think that's a great positive note to end it on, you know, that we have a lot to look forward to. We've got some balanced markets. We've got some stability in our political situation and we have a potential vaccine on the horizon. Well, Mahesh, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Learning more about ProSEP and everything that y'all are doing. Um, I appreciate you coming by. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Energy in Transition. Please follow us on your favorite podcast channel. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you in the next episode.